And Father, we pray that over ourselves this morning. Father, we, we come here because we want to hear you speak. We want the Spirit to be moving in us and, and shaping us and guiding us. We want to leave here knowing that we've heard you speak and we felt the presence of the Spirit. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that now as we, as we come to your word, um, that, that you'd speak and that you'd speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us this morning, and that all of the various things that we can struggle with, all the things that can distract us, our own fears, our own frustrations, our own busyness, Lord, just shove all of that off to the side and help us to hear you speak clearly this morning. So, Father, we pray as we do every week, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we are at our next section of John. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you want to pull your Bibles out from in front of you, you can turn to John 7.53, or it's basically chapter 8. It will be up on the screen otherwise. John seven fifty three through 8, verse 11. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones, but many times. They said to me, Often when someone's accusing you of something, especially when they're falsely accusing you of something, often... They're guilty of the very thing in which they're accusing you of. Um, and I was thinking of, you know, we've kind of all been there in, in our own little way, like playing a game with our kid. And our kid keeps going, you're cheating, you're cheating. And the whole time they're cheating, right? Um, or, you know, we, we've ran into people before who are always feel like or always worried that someone's stealing their stuff because they're the kind of person who's going around Dealing people's stuff. Or, or we've run into people who are kind of, they're always accusing people of kind of sneaking around, manipulating things behind the scenes uh, because they're the kind of people who are sneaking around, uh, manipulating behind the scenes. And I've seen it happen over and over again, and I've always kind of wondered, like, what's, why? Like, why does that, why does that happen? And I, I'm not going to tell you I have all of the answers this morning, but I have an idea um, that I think seems to make sense. And It's kind of two things that we assume, always. On the one hand, we assume that everyone else is kind of like us. So we assume that everyone's kind of doing the things that we're doing. 
And on the other hand, we assume that we are always righteous in our own actions and that they probably aren't. And so when we do these types of things, we, we know that, that we're kind of doing these kinds of sins and stuff, but we're like, well, I've got a good reason for this. I've had a hard week, or I've had this, or I'm actually doing this to help. And we just kind of assume that we're doing these sins for righteous reasons. But then we also assume that when other people are doing the same things we are, they're doing it for unrighteous reasons. There's no way they can... They can have a good reason for doing what they're doing. And, and it's, it's okay for me to kind of manipulate things behind the scenes. But if anybody else is, they're doing it for evil and wicked. And so I'm angry about it. I'm frustrated about it. You know, or it's okay for me to cheat, but it's not okay for them to cheat. And so we get frustrated about it. But, but it's kind of why we, we work really hard often to excuse ourselves um, and then accuse other people. We're often trying to say, well, it's okay that I'm doing this, but it's not okay that you're, you're doing the same thing. And, and kind of underneath all of that is, is a simple word, is hypocrisy. Um, you know, the, the core of hypocrisy is that there's this separation between what we believe, what we say, and, and how we live. And so when, when you're going around living as if, like, it's okay for me to do this, but it's not okay for you to do this, there's a separation there, and, and it's called hypocrisy. Or, or when you go around assuming that, that you have righteous motives, but everybody else has unrighteous motives, it's hypocrisy. Uh, there's this disconnect. And, and, and one of the things we need to be kind of brought face-to-face with is that uh, that, that hypocrisy actually lies like right here. Um, in every single one of us. It's, it's deep down in our heart. And we can't ignore it. It doesn't do us any good to pretend like it's not there, but it's here, always, kind of waging war against us. And, and that's really what's happening in this passage. Uh, you know, it's a really, it's a really well-known story. It's, it's a really powerful story. People have talked about it. People love it. We tell it all the time. Um, but many of the stories that are told over and over and over again get misunderstood. Um, and so we're going to kind of work through this one. Um, but before we work through it, I, I've just, this week I really worked hard to try to get a picture in my mind of this scene that, that was happening. Because it's, it's kind of incredible, to be honest, uh, what's, what's all happening. Remember what's happened leading up to this passage, right? Jesus... He was in the temple. It was during the Feast of Booths, right? So everybody's there. There's people from all over the place in the temple. And Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching in the temple. He's kind of causing a ruckus, right? Some people are believing in him, but most of the people in the temple are really angry at Jesus. They're, they're, they're frustrated. There's different groups of people who are organizing, trying to get him arrested. Remember, the Pharisees are getting angry because the temple guards haven't arrested him. There's a lot of tension and anger, and frustration. And then here's kind of what happens after that. Everybody goes to their own house. Jesus goes off on his own to the Mount of Olives. But then early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And I thought, that's pretty incredible, I think. In the midst of massive groups of people who are angry 
at him, trying to have him arrested, what does Jesus do first thing in the morning? Actually, John doesn't even say. He says early in the morning, Jesus goes right back to the temple, sits down in the temple, and begins to teach. And people come to him. They, they gather around him. And what struck me was he does this knowing that the Pharisees are trying to have him arrested and they're trying to kill him. They're trying to keep him out of the temple. He, he knows this. Even the crowds are getting angry at him teaching in the temple. They're trying to organize to have him arrested and try to have him killed. And he, he could have easily just said, you know what, I'm walking away. I'm not going to do this thing of teaching. I'm going to stay out of the out of this anger, out of the frustration, out of all of these attacks. But what he does is he gets up early the next morning, heads of the temple, and keeps doing what the Father told him to do. Um, and, and he keeps doing it with this level of confidence that, you know, throughout John we hear this phrase, like nothing happened to him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. The, the Father's plan hadn't been enacted yet. And so Jesus says, has this sense where he's unwaveringly just going to do what the Father has called him to do. And he's going to do it with this kind of unwavering faith that nothing's going to happen to him apart from the Father's will. So he can enter into this situation where people are trying to arrest him and kill him, and he's going to enter into that faithfully because the Father told him to. And so Obviously, the Pharisees are really not happy about this, right? They're like, man, we can't get rid of this guy. And so they come into the temple that morning. It almost seems like what I kind of love, too. Jesus is in the temple before the Pharisees. They come wandering into the temple, and they see this happening. Jesus sitting there, and it said all the people, so a huge crowd of people gathered around Jesus, and the Pharisees are ticked. But they also see an opportunity here. They, they kind of see this and they're like, all right, this is the time. If we do the right thing now, we can make this guy look like a fool and a fraud in front of everybody. Like, this is our opportunity to make him look bad. And if everybody finally sees him for the, for the fraud that he is, for the fool that he is, then we can maybe get rid of this guy. And so they have this plan. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And that last line's really important. Uh, it's, John kind of puts it right at the center of all of this as a way of showing us, like, this is kind of the central thing that's going on in this passage. Um, It's all about the Pharisees trying to test Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to get at Jesus. It actually has nothing to do with the law. The Pharisees don't really care about the law. They just want to get to Jesus, right? And it actually has nothing to do with the woman because they don't really care about the woman either. They just want to get to Jesus. It's their commitment. Like, we just want to do whatever we can in whatever way we can to get this guy, to get him arrested, and to get him out of here. Um, and when we understand that, it, it really does help us understand Jesus' response in, in the midst of all this. Why does he say what he sa- the way he says things? Why does he act the way he does? 
It's all in response. He knows that they're just trying to trap him. And Jesus actually has no time for that. But it's also important to recognize what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying here isn't necessarily wrong, right? So in Deuteronomy, we read this, right? If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them should die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So like this was the law of God. If someone was caught in the act of adultery, it said both the man, both the woman. Like they both are to die. That was the sentence. Now, of course, there's been a lot of talk about this passage like, well, they just brought the woman. You can't do this on your own. Like, where's the guy? Um, Which isn't necessary. It's just, on the one hand, it's not really the point of the passage. On the other hand, it points to the hypocrisy of the leaders. It's just pointing to, they don't care about the law. Um, But nonetheless, the law said that this woman who had committed adultery was to die. That, that was the law. So they're not necessarily wrong. And I looking them, the Pharisees come like barging through, like pushing people out of the way, bringing this woman with, sets her in front of Jesus and says, this woman's supposed to die. What do you say? Tell us. Make a judgment. And Jesus completely ignores them. And starts doodling in the dirt. And it says, they continued to ask. So they're still saying, answer us! Answer us! And he just keeps doing this. And now, you know, there's, there, there's always speculation about, what was he writing? You know, even, uh, you know, I, I listened to R.C. Sproul preach on this passage uh, this morning on my way to church, and he's speculating. You know, I love R.C. Sproul. He's speculating. What was Jesus writing? And, and, and my opinion is, if, if it was important for us to know what Jesus wrote, they would have told us what Jesus wrote. And since John didn't tell us what Jesus wrote, it doesn't really matter what he was doing. It matters the act that he was just writing. Pharisees just bugged him enough that he finally spoke. He speaks because it's part of the Father's plan. And so Jesus eventually says, okay, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then we see their response when they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And, and this is primarily speaking about the the response of the Pharisees. Like, there's a huge crowd there, and Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees who are demanding that this woman be put to death. He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, okay, whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead, be the first one to throw, throw a stone. And when the Pharisees heard this, they all turned and started to walk away. And I think as the Pharisees walked away, then the crowds kind of walked away and were given this picture of just Jesus and the woman there. Um, but again, like I kind of hinted at, it's really important to understand what's actually happening here because, you know, I, I've heard a lot of sermons preached on this passage. I've preached on it a number of times myself and not probably always in helpful ways. And, um, and I think there's some misunderstandings about what Jesus is doing here. I, I've heard some people preach on this passage and say, 
what Jesus is really doing is saying that like the law is not actually that important. So yeah, sure, the law says that this woman needs to die, but, but that's not what we're going to do here. We need to be softer. We need to be gentler. We need to be nicer than that. Um, and then I've heard other people take this passage and kind of apply it and, and say, like, because of this, none of us can ever confront anybody about any sin in their life because it's like, well, who are you to talk to somebody about sin in their life? You're a sinner. They're a sinner. You're not anybody. You can't talk to them about this. And, and neither response is helpful because both of those responses are just completely contradictory to who Jesus was and how he acted. On the one hand, Jesus explicitly tells people, I did not come to remove the law. I didn't come to remove even a a period or a comma or an apostrophe from the law. I didn't come to do any of that. And actually, every time Jesus speaks about the law of God, he actually elevates it. And he's showing everybody that you actually aren't taking it as seriously as you think you are. And so if we think Jesus is trying to say, well, the law is not important here, that's, we're misrepresenting him. And on the other hand, we can't understand this as Jesus saying, never confront anybody about their sin because Jesus tells us to confront people about their sin. Uh, later on in the passage, we'll look at a passage where he tells us to do that. But Matthew 18, he says, if someone sins against you, do what? Go to them and tell them their sin. So he can't be meaning don't ever confront anybody about their sin because you're a sinner. So the question is, what's going on here? Um, and, and in a word, what's going on here is Jesus once again um, confronting the Pharisees of their hypocrisy. Um, it's him taking the opportunity to look at the Pharisees and say, you guys want everyone to think that you love the law. You even maybe have blinded yourselves to think that you love the law, but you don't. You you don't actually care about the law. Um, And he he does it in in a couple of ways. One of the things that he's doing is he's pointing to this other passage from the law from Deuteronomy 7. So we read this. It says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. The hand of the witnesses should be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's, that's kind of the refrain throughout the law for, for any of these kind of death sentences. But, but this law is showing that not only were there some pretty serious consequences to, to breaking the law of God, but, but there's also pretty rigid standards around enacting those laws. And so... He said, there's no death penalty on just one witness saying that something happened. That, that would never happen. It has to be two, most often three witnesses have to see something happening before any death penalty can be put forward. And then those witnesses have to feel so strongly about it that they themselves have to be the ones who throw the first stone. And if they don't feel that convinced, and if they don't feel that strongly about it, There's no death penalty. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is, the Pharisees come to him and they say, hey, look, this woman's been caught in adultery. And Jesus is saying, where are the witnesses? Is it just one of you? Is there two? Is there three? 
Which witness? Which witness is going to be the one to throw the first stone? And what he's pointing out again to the Pharisees is that you're looking at this part of the law, but you're ignoring all of the rest of it because you don't really care about the law. All you're trying to do is use this um, to get at me. They don't love the law as much as they say they do, as much as they think they do. Um, they're hypocrites. But, but one of the really interesting parts that I, I came across this week was from one of the commentators. Um, his name is D.A. Carson. He's from Trinity in, in Chicago, Chicago area. Um, here, here's what he said. So Jesus, this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy, the passage that we just read. The witnesses of the crime must be the first to throw the stones, and they must not be participants in the crime itself. So Jesus' saying does not mean that the authorities must be paragons of sinless perfection before the death sentence can be properly meted out, nor does it mean that one must be free from even lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery, even though lust and adultery do belong in the same category. But it means, rather, that they must not be guilty of this particular sin. And that, I think, kind of opens up some light on on what was going on. Um, So not only did there need to be two or three witnesses in order to bring, to, to throw the first stone, but the person, the people throwing the stone couldn't be guilty of that sin. And so when Jesus says, he was without sin, He's almost saying, he who's without this sin. And he's looking out at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and saying, okay, buddies, whichever one of you hasn't committed, isn't guilty of adultery right now, go ahead and do it. And they all walk away. Which shows, which shows the corrupt. I mean, I was thinking, this isn't in my sermon notes. I was just thinking of this on my drive into church. I mean... When we look out across the church and we go, how can so many pastors be being caught in sexual immorality and all of this? And then we look at this and we go, it's been there from the beginning. There's hypocrites all over the place. And Jesus is calling the Pharisees on it. And when he says, okay, if any of you are not guilty of adultery, go ahead. And they walk away and they all admit they're guilty of that sin too. They're hypocrites. They they don't actually believe the law. They don't actually care about the law. They just use it for their own purposes, for their own power, to try to get themselves forward. Um, And again, we see what I was talking about at the beginning. They're accusing this woman of what? The very thing they're guilty of. Now, some might want to argue that that's not what Jesus is doing in that passage. It might be kind of a stretch, and it's, it's possible but, but it's the same point nonetheless. If, if, if you want to just understand it as just really broad and say, okay, any of you who are not sinners, you know, go ahead and cast the first stone. That's fine, but it's the same point. Uh, the same point is being made to the, the Pharisees who walk around as if they are God's gift to humanity and like they are the holiest of the holies. And Jesus is saying, okay, if you're honest with yourself, and you're without sin, go ahead and do that. And they all walk away, again, proving they don't actually love the law the way that they say they do. They're, they're hypocrites. Um, and Jesus calling them out for it. And so they all walk away, and yet the woman doesn't. Which I think is, is kind of... Because you would think like, she would take the opportunity to get out of Dodge, right? Like, 
They just brought her into a huge group of people to condemn her to death. And you would think in the midst of the chaos of the Pharisees screaming and Jesus writing in the ground, like not looking at her, she'd be like, this is a great opportunity for me to take off. Or, or Jesus kept doodling in the dirt as everybody walked away from him. So he's not paying attention. Everybody's wandering off. You think the woman would have been like, great opportunity to get out of here. But she doesn't. She, she stays there. And we read Jesus then stands up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. It's one of these moments where you could see the way that Jesus responds differently to different groups of people. To where they're at. Um, the, the Pharisees and their hard hearts, uh, Jesus speaks hard words to people with hard hearts. But this woman standing before him who's, who's broken, um, Jesus speaks soft words to her. Uh, and it's this beautiful mix of like tenderness and firmness, right? Because on the one hand, he says, I'm not here to condemn you. And on the other hand, he says, now stop doing what you're doing that's leading you into further condemnation. Um, it, it's what John pictured at the beginning of his gospel when he talks about Jesus. says, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And we see Jesus' interaction with this woman and with the Pharisees. It's full of grace. It's full of truth. Saying, I'm not here to condemn you, but now stop. Stop living a life that leads to condemnation. Calvin said, the same word of God when forgiveness is offered were called repentance. You can't have forgiveness without repentance. They come together. They're woven in. And, you know, it's, 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 gonna, it's one of the hardest things we have to do, I think, as we, as we try to live out our faith in the world, is, is to try to find this balance Right, Because I think it sometimes it just feels impossible to hit the balance of full of grace and full of truth, like tenderness and firmness as we, as we interact with people around us. We just kind of feel like we're going to fall off one side or the other. But I also want to make sure we don't... What, what I often hear when people are talking about trying to find this balance of full of grace and truth, they, they think like the Pharisees are on one side of the ditch and then there's some other group on the other side of the ditch. They have the Pharisees, they're the, they're the hard, mean, legalistic ones over here, and then you have these people who are just nice and they don't care about the law. But, but Jesus is saying actually the Pharisees are on both sides of the ditch. The Pharisees don't actually care about the law. Yeah, they're mean and they're harsh and they're all these things, but they're actually over here, they're, all, they're like not following the law. They're they're sinning, they're committing adultery, they're doing all of these things that they say they're not. They're just hypocrites. And so it's not like the Pharisees are over here and other people are over here. The Pharisees are here and here. And, we're call- and the Pharisees don't have grace and the Pharisees don't actually have truth. But we're called to find this way of Jesus in the middle where we are people who are full of grace and, and full of truth. And that's been Jesus' point throughout all of this. And he keeps calling the, the Pharisees out for it over and over again. And, uh, and one of the ways he does that, and I think this is, this is from another gospel, but I think it's the same thing Jesus is doing in this story. 
um, he looks at the Pharisees and he says this, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? Or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Speck out of your brother's eye. That's what's going on in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the woman caught in, in adultery. He, he's, telling, he's telling the Pharisees, deal with the adultery in your own life and in your own heart before you even try to deal with the adultery in this woman's life. Not saying they should never do that, but don't pretend like it's not there and then try to come in and address the sin in someone else's life. Um, they're not called hypocrites because they're confronting people about their sin. They're being called hypocrites because they're not acknowledging their own sinfulness. And Jesus says, before you go to talk to anybody about the sin in their life, make sure you come face to face with the sin that's in your own heart first. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. And then, once you do that, then you can go talk to someone else about their sin. Um, and, and when we do that, it changes everything, really. Because when you've come face to face with your own sin, you, it's impossible for you to come to confront someone else in their sin as someone who's holier than thou and better. Just kind of puff your chest out, come to like smack them around. Because You've been there. You've done that. You know how bad it hurts. You know how much that messed up your life and your family's life. So you're not coming down there to pound on that person. You're coming down and saying, you're coming to them as a fellow sinner. And you're saying, I've been there. I've messed that up too. I've seen the pain. I've seen the hurt. Let me help you get out of that because I don't want you to go down that same road too. You're not coming in to condemn, right? That's why Jesus said, I'm not here. I'm not going to condemn you. But you need to stop. Because this leads to further condemnation. Like, when, when we confront our own sin, it changes our whole demeanor. We never, as a Christian, go to someone and confront them in their sin from a place acting like we're holier than they are. We always come as, I'm a sinner too. And a but for the grace of God... I have been there or would have been there. And when we do that, we can start to finally talk to people a little bit better, full of grace and truth. Just the final thing I want to point out, one of the powerful realities is there was one person in that whole story that could have legitimately thrown the first stone, right? It was Jesus. Jesus could have stood up and said, I'm without sin. I know all things. I'm a witness. I know that she committed adultery. I know. I'm a witness to that. I can stand up. I can throw the first stone. But he didn't. Instead of throwing it, he took it. Jesus was able to stand and say, this woman actually does deserve to die for committing adultery. And yet, instead of condemning her to die, I'm going to go and I'm going to bear that condemnation. I'm going to die in her place.
so that she's not condemned to death, but so that she can have life, and she can have life to the full. And and I'm going to die in her place, not only so that she can have life to the full, so that she can be forgiven and cleansed and turn from the sinful life that she has lived up to this point. And it's the same word for, for every one of us. You know, somebody once told me a good, a good way to understand the Bible is anytime you're reading a story, if there's a sinner in the story, you're the sinner. <laughs> um, and so we're reading this story. We need to put ourselves in the position of this woman. And we need to acknowledge that we're all standing before Jesus with a death sentence upon us. And we deserve it. And Jesus doesn't say, well, that's not important. Jesus says, no, I'll die for you in your place. I'll take your punishment. I can say, neither do I condemn you because I bore that condemnation. But then he also says, now go and sin no more. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your truth. Father, we know we need all of that in life. If we didn't have your truth, we would be lost and wandering. We'd be tossed like a ship out at sea. We'd have no meaning, no purpose, no direction. But without your grace and without your mercy, we would also be hopeless. So we're thankful that you give us all of that, that you're full of grace, you're full of truth, and that you continue to pour that out on us. And Father, we, we come to you admitting, on the one hand, that, that we often don't accept your grace and truth, that we often try to just do our own thing and, and ignore you and don't rest in you. And on the other hand, we don't often live as your people who are full of grace and full of truth. Uh, often, every one of us here, we live as hypocrites. So, Father, we ask your forgiveness. Uh, we come to you acknowledging the depth of our own sin, and we ask that you would cleanse us, and that you would forgive us, that you would renew us, and that you would restore us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that your Spirit then, Father, would lead us out from here so we would go out not to sin anymore, that we would live the life you've called us to live, and that we would live as people who are full of grace and truth, not only in our own lives, but as we interact with others out in the world. Ultimately, we pray that that you would be glorified through everything we say and everything we do. And all God's people said, amen.